When she was 35, meditating alone in an Indian cave, Miranda McPherson received the gift of an experience of grace so profound that it transformed her life. That grace remains with her and is transmitted to others by her words and presence. In this conversation, she discusses the nature of grace, the gifts it offers, and the ways we can become receptive to it. For Miranda, grace abounds in every moment, and when we open to it, we find that we are graced by a boundless web of support from our fellow humans, from nature, and from the sacred. As you listen to Miranda, drink in her words, but also open to her presence and the grace she transmits. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Welcome back, everyone. We are honored and blessed to have Miranda McPherson with us, who's a spiritual teacher, a non-dual teacher, could I venture to say. And we're having this, this conversation from my hotel room at the Haynes Mansion at SAN, the Science and Non-Duality Conference. And it has been a smorgasbord and feast of amazing people and encounters and experiences. So we're, we're, we're just thank you so much to be here and, and uh, you. share your learning and yourself and your experience and, and who you are. Welcome. Yeah, and, and very recently you've written this book, The Way of Grace. You talk of the way of grace, the, power, the transforming power of ego relaxation, but you have a very different and far deeper perspective on grace. And I'd like to just begin by reading the opening quote you used from Ramana Mahashi saying, Grace is always present. It is really inside you, in your heart, and the moment you merge the mind into its source, grace rushes forth, sprouting as from a spring from within you. That's a very different view of grace from the usual one we have in our culture. Please. Yeah. Well, grace is an evocative word that is used in some traditions more than in others, but Whenever we use it, it's really evoking the felt sense of that which can't really be put into words, but can only be known through direct experience. But I believe that in order to truly walk the spiritual path deeply and to truly live into our fullest potential as human beings, that we need grace more than ever. It's really grace that is the agency of transformation it dances with our efforts and our dedication and our sincerity and our willingness and our engagement with practices. But spiritual awakening is not a mathematical formula. And anyone who's actually engaged deep spiritual practice will know that. That, yeah, you have to put the work in and be sincere and look at yourself. But the moments where the veils lift happen when they happen and they happen by grace. Mm. So what I'm interested in is how do we become more receptive to the transforming agency of grace. And not only that, how do we recognize that it's already our primordial ground, that loving goodness, blessedness, in, in profound love is the foundation of everything already. When you recognize that, you feel the grace of existence. 
So I've come to see that grace really has four dimensions, four ways that it comes alive in our direct experience to help us walk the spiritual path and ultimately to help us become more graceful human beings. And I personally believe that that's what our world really needs, more graceful human beings, mm. many more graceful human beings. A lot of the behavior that we're seeing that is so painful to behold is really a lack of grace, you know, ego, egocentricity running amok, behaving mm. what egos do when they're scared and they don't understand what we really are, what really matters, and how to be a bit more elegant in dealing with the challenges of life, both personal and collective. Okay, well, we've got enough to work with there for now. Let's, <laughs> let's unpack. Let's, well, uh, yeah, and we will ask you to, but let's unpack some of that. So, so you began by pointing to the the role of grace as what allows us to be receptive and to allow our efforts, our work, to be to be effective. And in some traditions, the, for example, the Zen tradition, there's the, there's the path of effort and the path of receptivity. How do you see those coming together? Well, they're not two, okay. inevitably. So I like to call it the gentle effort. You know, Ramana mm. Maharshi spoke about that, about the gentle effort. And I think he was picking up on something the Bhagavad Gita spoke about, about the rightful effort that never goes to waste. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same thing as ego efforting. Okay. Right? So when we take ourselves to be a separate somebody, we think we're our mind, we think we're our, our intellect, we think we're our body, we think we are the, the stream of our history that has been constellated into a structure that we happen to call me. When we take that to be what we are, there's not a surrender, there's not a yielding. And coming back to that quote that I begin the book with of Ramana, where he says, when the mind merges back into its source, He's also described that as when the mind merges into the heart. And it's not the physical heart, but it's when the, the mind, the sense of being a separate somebody who thinks it's the doer, when that becomes humble, when that really subsides back into, you know, what has really caused us all to exist, what is causing us to draw breath right now, what is causing all the the mechanisms that are happening involuntarily in our body, the same thing that's causing the, the waters to flow and the mountains to arise and all of us to breathe, that is grace. I call it the ground of grace. So in order to truly gain traction on the path and allow true surrender, letting the mind merge into its source, that's not really possible unless we recognize what is the cause of our being and all being. What is it that causes everything to exist at all? Once we recognize what that cause is, then there's a settling that can happen. There's the beginning of real surrender that can happen, a relinquishing of control of the separate somebody who thinks it's the doer, a merging back into, oh, okay. And then there's some ego relaxation that takes place and we have a platform to then begin to open to the, the dimension of grace that is most often talked about perhaps in the Christian tradition, of grace as a felt sense of blessing, guidance, um, gifts that come to us in life. And we all need those things, the grace that comes to heal and love and nourish us in so many 
mysterious and personal ways. You know, and then that gives us a platform to really allow deep transformation in places where we really need it. So as you're describing that, uh, the grace is, you're pointing to several dimensions of it, but a significant part of it is a recognition of our ground of being, yeah. our true nature, and that both offers the grace and is the means by which we we become more, more receptive to it. Mm-hmm. And yet, that's already a fairly advanced experience. I mean, to be able to uh-huh. to touch into that, how about, how about before then? Because mo- for most of us, that kind of well, awareness... Well, it doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, yes, right. it's a deep realization, but one of the things that I love to do that you didn't see yesterday because we only had 30 minutes is all these inquiry exercises that I do, and it's all about helping people through a relationship to actually explore more deeply things that they're often not paying attention to. For example, if I were to give you a question, what's holding you now? And if you were to go very deep into that question for like 20 minutes with me asking you that question and to really feel into, well, what is that? What is actually holding me now in this moment? We could probably look at a lot of things. We could see on the most basic level, there's a chair holding your body in this moment. That's not an opinion, that's a fact. There's life-giving oxygen that arrives with every breath that's holding you, sustaining you. There's space. There's goodness of human friendship. There's a lot of care from people in your life. There's the fact that the trees are naturally taking in our carbon dioxide and giving us clean air and all of that is happening without a press release from any of us that is just what's so there is an earth that is holding us and providing us with a home whatever mistakes we've made that is just what's so and so when we turn our attention to recognize what's actually here then there is a shift in our consciousness a a letting go of the mind a relaxing into a deeper experience of the present moment and a recognition that what's here inherent to life in this present moment is a loving goodness, is a grace, is a beneficence. It's not just empty. So the ground of being is spoken of in Buddhism and in Eastern traditions more as sort of emptiness. Well, what I'm saying is, well, it's also loving goodness. It's Mm -hmm. also nurturing and holding and full of intelligence and life and that it really behooves us as people who are interested to become more mature and real so that we can show up in the world with that maturity and wisdom to take that in to feel it in our bodies to let that permeate our felt experience in the heart and to recognize it within our minds because if we do you know we settle down we come off our arrogance a little bit. We're a little bit more available and open to be more courageous and real with whatever life is presenting us with. That I think of as, I know you do too, because I'm taking this from A Course in Miracles. We are all working on a very personalized version of the universal curriculum. Mm-hmm. I would say that universal curriculum is wake up and love. Wake mm-hmm. up, love, and serve. Mm-hmm. And of course, that knocks on our inner door in unique ways, 
and with particular things that invite us to wake up, invite us to wake up out of fixation and fear and habits that contract us and and wake up into as well. So again, there's an awful lot in what, what you said. So as I, I was kind of being taken on the on the journey as you okay. described, and just opening myself to it, and and the recognition that emerged was, yeah, there's a perspective from which all this is a blessing. That's all right. All this is great. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's the ground of grace. When you recognize that, there's a there's the beginning of ego relaxation that just happens naturally. There's a settling into what is with more acceptance, with more courage, with just more openness. And that's a really important thing. If nothing else happens, that will produce some positive, useful traction in inner peace and and in bringing forth more maturity in the person. And the other thing you said was, You've developed some questions and inquiries for dropping us into that. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Well, in every chapter, I mean, a big part of how I teach, ego relaxation is the methodology. It's also a transmission, but it's a, it's a how at the same time. And it's practiced through holistic inquiry. It's a very particular way I teach inquiry that's body, heart, mind, using a very specific sequence of repeating questions done in relationship, sometimes in meditation, but it's usually more powerful if we do it in the interpersonal field, as also specific kinds of meditation practice that cultivate more depth in three centers. Can you give us an example of a question? Yeah. So, uh, where I would begin with pretty much anybody is a question, what limits your capacity to be here as you are in this moment? Okay. <laughs> so obviously that would be a question that we'd have people asking one another for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. just looking at the limitations. And so I always find that it's helpful to flush up the limitations or the blocks first. Okay. And to let that be seen, and for the only response that the other person says is thank you. Mm-hmm. Because as we're revealing limitations, fears, concerns, blockages, what's really crucial is that there's no interference or judgment. There's no good, bad, right, wrong that is given. And it's a training for us to relate to ourselves in that way, to meet everything with and from the consciousness of love and let it be, not manipulate our experience or commentate about it. Just let it be met by presence, loving presence. So then what we would look at in line with that question is um, what limits your capacity to drop deeper and let yourself be. We would want to know what's at the core of this. So we would go a little further and see what's holding that limitation in place. That could be a huge range of things. Inevitably it will have something to do with our history or concerns or our conditioning or our fear of the unknown, or our fear of what might happen if we allowed that, what we might have to feel. And so, you know, we would explore that, and then we would take it further to explore what's beyond those obstacles. Uh, What's it like if you soften, open, allow your experience to be exactly as it is? Mm. 
So the what's it like kind of questions are an invitation to open up, to explore, to just see and see what you find. But when you're held by the question and by the presence of another person, we can often get a lot further than we can on just the meditation cushion alone because our ego developed in relationship to other human beings. So therefore, it makes sense that the relaxation of ego is likely to happen more easily when there's contact that is spacious, loving and unconditional. So that has been my experience, that I've been able to access and flush up limits of my own ego structure in that kind of container of relating and also that I've been stimulated by things that they have said that all of a sudden have brought more awareness. Oh yes, I, I can see that in myself as well. And so I'm influenced there by all my years of study of A Course in Miracles, which says that the Kingdom of Heaven is entered two by two. Oh, and the understanding of the power of joining when two people join with the intention to awaken, to evolve beyond just more egocentricity, when they're interested and they're willing to help one another, there's a power of a third in that. That mm. I don't know, it might be because I'm a woman and I think the feminine understands human relationship and its value for awakening. Um, me, that's why, I don't know, but it excites me and um, I think it's a very beautiful thing. Yeah, exquisite. I mean, I, you ask the question, what about limits? And I can immediately feel into the sort of tension, contraction, fear, and say, okay, that's what's limiting me, and what's the belief under that? And, and it's, uh, I can see that you're pointing to a bottomless explore, exploration there. So, can you give us a feel for, say, a subsequent question, a further step in your way of grace? Yeah, by, by the way, fear is what came up. Okay. Yeah, we have a we have a whole body of teaching. In fact, the second mm -hmm. chapter of my mm -hmm. book is called "There Is Nothing to Fear," mm -hmm. and I begin that by sharing my experience with um, studying, of course, in miracles. Actually, right. it was in my twenties. I was studying all of that before I had the awakening with Ramana, and it was a very powerful and important part of my life. But I remember when I got on lesson, I think it's forty-eight, that says, "There's nothing to fear." And this particular lesson was just like three short pragmatic paragraphs saying there really is nothing to fear at all, it's just your mind. Right. And I was like 24 at the time and looking into my mind and I'm not a particularly fearful personality type but I've never been terribly anxious. So I didn't think I really suffered from a lot of fear. But when I really looked, there were so many neurotic yes, fears. It was just crazy. I was afraid of everything. Exactly. And like, you know, what are you talking about? There's nothing to fear. I don't understand this. So my response to that was to go back to the very beginning of the book because clearly I'd missed something. You know? <laughs> so I thought, I, I'm a beginner. I'm, I'm clearly a slow learner at this. Let's just go right back to the beginning and start again because I must have skipped something crucial. I don't get this. It doesn't make any sense. But really, fear is fundamental. The minute yeah. we experience ourselves as being a separate somebody, there's terror. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, you can be hurt by anything. You don't know what's going to happen next. There's, it's instinctual. There's an armoring in the body as tension patterns. There's a darting around in the mind trying to figure out where that scary thing's going to come from and how you can defend yourself against it before it happens. 
And then there's a kind of a withholding, a pulling back in the heart and a closing, a sort of shy, not quite feeling that we can truly... And a defensiveness. Just that's to right. the world and everyone. That's right. To, to, pers- to kind of defend against imagined threats that feel real, right? And so that's what I've seen is that's foundation to everybody, whether you think you're a scared, anxious kind of personality or not. And so that's a, one of the big forces that we have to address if we want to deepen as human beings. It requires a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. So I address that, you know, specifically. So the line of inquiry I developed for that is tell me something you fear. Yeah. So you just name a fear. And then the next line of inquiry, you follow that thread with um, who does this fear belong to? So you see, do I have an age in this place where I feel afraid? Do I feel like a child? If so, toddler, baby, seven-year-old, nine-year-old, 13-year-old? Like, does it have, what's the identity of this part that's afraid? Sometimes people find it's not even my fear, it's ancestral fear. Or it's fear that was kind of put into us from our mother or father or our culture or our gender. So that's really interesting. And as someone who's, this is the third continent I've called home now, I've realized how much fear I had that came from the cult of being Australian. Mm. You don't realize mm. that you're part of a cult until you exit that cult and you go to another cult and you realize, wow, this cult has very different kinds of consciousness and thought systems and fears and concerns than the one that I was programmed in. Yeah, the biggest cult of all was culture. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, and then we follow that further, um, you know, so tell me something you fear, who does this fear belong to? Um, and then, so you work with that for like 20 minutes, those two questions, and you just feel it, sense it. And the practice of ego relaxation is whatever you discover, you do nothing to change, fix, or rearrange mm-hmm. it. And this is such a thing for the mind. It's very confronting to the mind that thinks, I have to do some transformation now, because mm-hmm. here I am with all this mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Cease and desist. No meddling, no futzing, no rearranging. You are not the transformer. The mystical power of grace does the transformation. Your part is to expose everything, to stay in your body, to feel everything, to not pick up a single defense, which requires some practice. And beginning to trust everything you're talking about. Right. That there is grace. That our deepest self is our best self, and we can do that. But the only way you're going to get to experience that is to take the risk. Right. And so I'm always bringing people back to the simplicity of what's holding you now. Feel the fact of the chair under your body. Feel the fact of the earth under your feet. Feel the fact of the oxygen coming in. It's inherently good. When you bring your awareness to take that in, then it gives you the courage and the capacity just to be here to feel it, to do nothing, but keep exposing everything in the spirit of just thank you. And so then we go further with the fear. What's it like? What's here in the space beyond you and the fear? And that's very exciting when we can journey into that space into, with the interpersonal holding, because you get to actually see that fear can't persist with, without the story of a separate somebody. Right. I mean, there's obviously the, the fear that's that's part of the wisdom of a human being coming from the survival instinct that is basically saying, 
move out of the way or you're going to get run over. You know, just make a different action here. But that's different than the mindstream of fear. That's just constant defense and chitch and commentary and arguments and contractions. That one might not even be consciously aware of. And we have to become consciously aware of it. Otherwise, there's, there's no peace. There's no capacity to drop out of that into something that is deeper and has more clarity and wisdom that we truly do need to live a meaningful and authentic life and make a positive contribution. Absolutely. Yeah. So, the, again, there's so much in what you said, and uh, I want to draw out a couple of things. One was, you said, you made a really key point about the the response to the fear is not to, cha- not to try to change, right. not to manipulate. Mm-hmm. And that's so counter to our cultural understanding, our psychotherapeutic community's mm-hmm. understanding. And, and so many spiritual practices that one works on and transforms. And, and there's a place for that, clearly. Yes, there is. There's clearly a place, but you're pointing to something, in some ways in many traditions, that that idea of, of simply letting be is a practice that is a culmination practice. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, one does, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, one does 20 years of manipulating the mind in every conceivable way, and then the final instruction is... Do nothing. Do nothing, exactly. Right. But you're bringing this in the very early stage. I am, because it's effective. I've worked with a lot of people over 30 years, and I've seen this actually really works, and it cuts mm-hmm. through a lot. Because what it actually really brings to light is you're not the doer. And that's really the primary obstacle that is so deeply ingrained. We think we are the doer and we are the one that's making it happen. We never have been. That's a delusion of, of a separate self that's actually quite arrogant and doesn't even know that yet. And that's what's blocking Grace, that is what is blocking immense, total support, love, peace, help at every turn on the path that I want everybody to know about. I want everybody to know, listen, you don't have to work so hard. It does not have to be such a struggle. There is so much love and support to help you at every stage of the journey and in your ordinary human life. And that if we can open to that, then not only can we gain more traction on the path, but there can be less unnecessary suffering and more of our life force and the gifts that we all have uniquely within us can be freed up from self-centered purposes and competition and trying to prove ourselves to service. Mm. And I feel, listen, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation right now. It is, yes. So we need our talents and intelligence and gifts and love and compassion and wisdom to be liberated from unnecessary gymnastics and bondage so that it can be put to good use. Hmm, I wish I had this conversation with you 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I worked very hard at a lot of these practices and it took me a long time to come to the realization which has really been the foundation of your work and, of, and the central message of this book. But, but, we don't have to struggle so hard. I yeah, know. and you know, speaking as someone that was raised in the cult of Australia, I don't know about you, but I was a child of the 70s in Australia with a prime minister, aka president, called Malcolm Fraser. And it was a time that Australia was going through a huge recession. 
And so any child of the 70s in Australia grew up with the message, life wasn't meant to be easy. Mm. It was this deep mantra that went in. I mean, any child who complained to their teacher or their parent about whatever was going on, the teacher or the parent would say, life wasn't meant to be easy, like buck up and try harder, was the message. That went very deep into me. So, as I'm sure you know, sometimes we we teach things that we ourselves really need to work with. And I could see how that tendency in me to struggle, that had a cultural component, it had a, a personal historical component, because of feeling, getting separated from the felt sense of support, which had my, my kind of historical family of origin pieces in there. Um, and the way that my personality formed around that, it makes it's such grace that this transmission of ego relaxation came to me because it broke through the core of that in a very powerful way, and I really needed it. I really needed it. I really needed to receive the transmission of ego relaxation, saying, be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, seek for nothing, Relinquish nothing. Be as you are. Rest in God. Ah. And that actually is very close to the what you write as, as the a summary of, a, of the recognition that emerged in your in the cave in India for you when you had your very deep opening. That's what I heard. Yeah. And it was like someone taking out all the wires in the soundboard, all the major structures of what I knew, what I thought. At that time in my life, you know, I was a spiritual director of an interfaith seminary, and I had a lot of spiritual concepts and beliefs and they were useful to me. But my whole notion of what God was, who I was, what the world was, how evolution happened, Everything I thought I knew, it was all just like unplugged in that moment. And there was such depth of silence and peace, but I couldn't have claimed to understand it. And so it, it took me years to not only go through that awakening that had me in that state of no mind, no self, no God, no world for three weeks continuously, but then to understand what that actually meant what that really meant for a life. And mm. at first, I didn't know, honestly. I just had to tolerate knowing that something had been profoundly changed in my core center of gravity, and then going through what A Course in Miracles calls a period of undoing, where all the familiar structures that you know, that you've used to orient through life, are taken apart. It's little bit like, you know, what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing to cling to. The familiar reference points don't apply anymore. The language and the practices, I couldn't pray anymore for a while. I couldn't read A Course in Miracles. All I wanted to do was be quiet. I didn't even want to speak. Mm. So it was a little awkward then running a seminary with all this responsibility and 20 staff and several students training and ordaining people and I wasn't even sure if I believed in God anymore. It was mm. pretty awkward. But I, I kept feeling, just trust the silence. And it, 
was like this resonance of a bell this be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, seek for nothing, relinquish nothing, be as you are, rest in God. It seemed contradictory, I mean, but luckily I didn't try to sort of go there with my mind because I was more just feeling the effect of the transmission and I knew that that was a helpful one, but it was creating a lot of dissolution. And I knew enough to know the thing to do is to say yes. And you just, I mean, you're just saying those words now. It felt like a direct transmission. I would just like to invite you to say those words more slowly because I think all of the people listening can, you, you, you are transmitting and you, you gave an exquisite distillation of perhaps the central insight of your awakening in your life. And I, I got it even though you gave it quickly, but I'd love to hear it and benefit myself and for all of us more, if you said it more slowly. Be nothing, do nothing, get nothing, become nothing, seek for nothing. Relinquish nothing. Be as you are. Rest in God. Mm. So, for me, just turning to that brings immediate resetting, peace, a returning to you know what really can't be named but what is you know our ground our ground our truth the truth of everything and love is here peace is here clarity is here freedom is here healing is here wholeness is here and then when we look at it and we really study it we certainly as i began to reflect on what does this actually mean for life Practically speaking, I realized, well, my personality, who I thought I was, who I've usually taken myself to be, <laughs> has always been driven, you know, to do this and that. I've always been a doer, you know, and there's, there's value in that. You know, I'm not somebody who's been... You ended up in a cave in India. I ended up that's, in a cave in India. That's but doing something. That's right, exactly. So it's there's paradox in it as sure. well. But the ego doing is driven by a desire to, to have to get something that you believe you're lacking. And certainly my experience was I'm not there yet. I have all these neurotic tendencies. I'm very aware of my ego faults and personality habits and how they got in the way of my relationships and functioning. I so wished they weren't there. I so wished I wasn't impatient. I so wished I wasn't judgmental. I so wished I wasn't controlling. I was all of those things. Anybody who knew me well could say, yep, that's true. I could put my hand and say, I admit it, that's true. You know, and all this prayer and meditation hadn't erased those habits. It made me more aware of them. But so I was trying to become the spiritually perfected version that I thought I should be. And there's a subtle chase in that that was limiting the possibility, that was limiting the full acceptance of my humanity, of just 
you know, none of us had a choice in how our ego formed into the shape that it did. We all had to adapt and survive our early environment, and we all had the parents we had who did the best they could. We all grew up in the culture that we grew up in. We didn't choose that. And so, like, realizing that I don't have to push myself into some idea of an enlightened condition, that it's not what it's about. I don't have to become this perfected version. You know, I don't even have to relinquish the things I think are wrong with me. You know, what if all of that could be welcomed to just be as it is, mm. without judgment, condemnation, reification? And what if it could all rest in God? It already does anyway. Right. But what if I could consciously go, let's let that all come back and be held and relax down into the foundation in which so much of the, the steam and the, the push and the drive and the resistance can melt. Mm. And that, that I saw something very profound about when that happens, there's a natural self-forgiveness. There's a mm. natural forgiveness of everyone's ego and a natural compassion for what a wild thing it is to be human, what we all go through, and how intense it is, right? And we're all just trying to learn and grow and deal with stuff, and, and our culture's so complex and crazy, and it's all coming at us so fast, and I just, I don't know, I just, I could almost cry at how deeply beautiful that was for mm. my heart. I could feel like, wow, how much love. It brought so much more love for my humanity and everyone's humanity and how much we all need to be loved and just forgiven and allowed to be. And when that's there, so much of the nonsense just settles down. Mm -hmm. Like a boisterous pet just calms down, settles down in your lap and starts to purr. Yeah. You know? And then, oh, there's a sweetness, a sweet little human beings who feel a little funny and crazy and so yeah. what? You know? But it doesn't have to be in the way. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you about it. You were talking about your experience in India, and you were running a seminary at the time, mm -hmm. <laughs> and everything went away. Um, did gradually it start to come back? Yeah. Like like the old structures? But In my experience, I've had similar powerful experiences, and I feel like I'm just, I'm annihilated. Okay, there's yeah. nothing there. And then it starts to come back, but it feels like, well, maybe it's the American cult, but I used to be a hunter. I grew up hunting, and you'd take the weapon apart, and you'd oil everything and clean it and all this and put it back together, and it would just fit together better, and there was a more graceful instrument after that. That's and a some, beautiful analogy. Yeah, and sometimes I felt like that. I've just been, it's still there, but it's it's more oiled, it's more graceful, and I've kind of take it's been taken apart, so I'm a little more aware mm. of what's going on. Mm -hmm. But it still feels like the same thing, but it's just not rusted or corroded or muddy, and it's right. just it's just available to... I love the way you describe that. For me, it's similar but different. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching at the time when when more, I call it more ordinary awareness, you know, returned. And there was a particularly tricky kind of issue in the root dynamic that was going on for a while. And I'm sitting there, and this is happening in the group, and I feel you know, my familiar personality kind of come back in. It felt like being like infinitely vast, squished through this sort of tight hole, you know, like you have to push one of those child sort of 
square blocks through a round hole. It's kind of you know, crunchy. It's a little like that, but at the same time, there was a detachment because I knew that, that I wasn't, I knew that wasn't me, it was my structure. And so there was a sense of something not being altered, and yet the return of the, the personhood and, and what went with that, and the construction of Mirandamus and all that was part of that. And, and at first, I thought it was a spiritual failure, and it's terribly judgmental, it exposes the thinking you know, a failure to stay in the no-self state. But then, immediately I heard, and it was the same presence that spoke inwardly, that spoke in the cave, says, no, 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 now integrate it. And I knew enough to know already, thankfully, that the point isn't that we're in a constant state of no-self, or boundless love, or whatever. The, the point is to relate to these expanded states as as the true guru, yeah. right? Yeah. The inner teacher that guides and wakes us up and brings forth everything to evolve us into a deeper embodiment of wisdom. And so that was very helpful, and I'm so glad I knew that, because it helped me to go, oh, this too. And so even those simple words, this too, became my mantra for about, okay, this too, okay, this too. Okay, this too, not either or, good, bad, spiritual, unspiritual, no, this too. And so that continued, and I noticed that, you know, as I was going through a pretty extreme period in this undoing of a marriage unraveling, all the work that I had been done for 10 years, I was very identified with coming apart. The country on which I lived coming apart, complete change, there was nothing that was unaffected, every structure that had held my familiar identity in place came burning down within six months. Mm. And mm. so there were moments where it was totally fine. I thought it was total peace, it was fine, I could see this was true, this was necessary. And I took great comfort in that passage that you all know in Sean Roger in the Course in Miracles in the Manual for Teachers, the development of trust. Mm. What an exquisite yeah. passage that that really held me how it walked through the stages in the development of trust for trust to become total, right? For the full transfer of knowledge to happen so that we might truly become a teacher of God, an embodiment of this. And it talked about the period of undoing, the period of sorting out, the period of relinquishment, you know, all these further periods. And I could recognize my own process in all of this. And it was very helpful to have that as a reference point that helped me to just allow it, because truthfully I was swimming from trusting and allowing and going with and allowing this sort of disassembling of all that was familiar, and then at other times feeling like a raw, traumatized animal shivering on the bathroom floor, a wave of terror, a wave of just feeling, I don't know what, but really strong things that were very visceral. And there was something in that that was really, really, important in what I'm now doing, because it helped me to understand and include our animal humanity, our emotions, the things that aren't rational or linear, and that they don't work very well with just giving principles to. We have to learn to sense and feel and soften and just be with, with immense kindness, 
in the same way that we have to be with a traumatized animal. And I often use that, like most of us have had the experience of, you know, getting an animal from a rescue and it's not had an easy time. And it, you, it doesn't know that you're the biggest animal lover and that it's going to have a really sweet life with you. Mm. It's just like, it's just scared and it doesn't know. And who are you? And I don't know where I am. And it's hiding behind the toilet and won't come behind the couch. And, you know, its visceral nervous system is just like terrified. And so in the same way that we have to be patient, spacious, kind, allowing, consistent, we have to be like that with these really primitive, scared, very unrational parts of us that they just need a lot of space and kindness mm. and patience. And that's so exquisite. <clears throat> And uh, again, what I'm struck by in being with you, as I have before, is your being. You there's a transmission from you, from your being, which is beautiful. And this, it is a transmission of grace. And and in in this bringing together several things you've talked about here, you effectively outlined several stages of both your own path and our path. First, the, the striving to fit shape yourself into some ideal model and then this realization at a certain point that oh it's not about shaping myself up to that it's about letting go of those That's images right. and, and then the the deep opening that occurs occurred along with that but then a further stage which isn't talked about so much the importance of an integration phase and then earlier you implied a stage beyond that the stage of Okay, when the, and it's not that the integration ever finishes or there, there's a final realization, it's an ongoing life process, as all of us, all of us discover. But you did point to the, to something beyond that, and it's not, not necessarily beyond, but something that calls subsequently, that is the call to service. That's right. Yeah, well, I think that things don't fully integrate until they get put into action. Mm. And it's in the serving, in the moving it into life that involves other people, it involves collaborating, it involves sharing it. That's how it gets embodied in us. Again, it shows us you know, how interdependent we really are, how much relationship is necessary for, for you know, our, to live into the fullest possibilities. And, by the way, that happens to be really good for our world too. Yes. You know? So, yeah. and I think that it's also part of the purification of the subtle self-centeredness that can easily creep in about me and my awakening. Right, right. <laughs> and, and of course, like that's of course that cuts the whole thing off at the knees because it's not about you and your awakening. It's about excuse me, using this very unpolitically correct word. It's about God living more fully here, everywhere. Mm. Like mm. taking up full residence as you and me and you and you and all of us. Mm. And that is the power and the glory that wants to be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I get really turned off by that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exquisite. And you also mentioned this is really a time for all people on deck. Yes. And yes. You know, the, the great question and issue of our time is the preservation of uh, civilization. How do you see this, this contributing to that? Well, 
am not a scientist and I have no idea whether spiritual practice or this kind of work is going to help to truly reverse things like climate change. But what I do know is that, you know, if we're clearer and more open and more present and more real and available to these larger forces than we can even fathom, then there's a chance for us to be able to collaborate and work together and and somehow be sensitive enough to hear the the nudges that we receive. I know for myself, I've trained myself, influenced by my study with the Course in Miracles, to make no decisions on myself. I mm. took that practice up a long time ago and I really do my best to live it. So and it's part of really the embodiment of, I understand it as of humility, of not leading with our mind, which is really very feeble, actually. It's not in touch with higher intelligence. You know, there are things we just can't know, and we have to be open to those higher forces that move our lives in the direction of certain actions and responses that we ourselves might not even know why. I mean, there's so many things that I've been guided to do that I didn't know why I was doing it at the time. And now I look back and I go, thank God I followed that. Mm. Because what it led to, I couldn't have foreseen, and it was so beneficent and beautiful, and um, magnificent really. And this is why we need to let our ego relax, because that's what helps us to be receptive to the more subtle forces of grace that bring precise clarity and guidance that move us in directions that are healing and noble and, and that, that, and I'll just, when I read the phrase, a relaxation of the ego, in the book or on your website, it, in my practice now, I, mean, I practice a lot, I mean, meditate a lot for a long time, and I was thinking about it, uh, what am I doing even these days? And usually I'll just sit, and if I sit for about 45 minutes, after 45 minutes, I'll go through the chatter of the mental. I don't even try to stop it anymore. I just, okay, mind must think, blah, 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 blah. And the monkey will do his thing until it's done, and my different ego things. And finally, I get to that place of ego relaxation, where the structure says, okay, thanks, we're done. Then at that place, I can move into that place of peace and hope and inner wisdom. And it, it doesn't like I can't. You know, do it like an L7 on a jukebox and get God's answer for everything. But if I need to know it, I know it's there. Yeah, and, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, there's three simple words that I, you know, I drop in like a penny to a still pond in the end of my meditation, and it's what's needed now. Mm. And I take those three words with me as an ongoing prayer as I'm moving about my day. And sometimes I get a clear sense of do this or speak to that person or get online and look at that, right. or do that. And other times it's not, there's not an answer, there's not a, you know, hi, my nose is gone. Right. God, it's not, like, not like that. <laughs> but it's more just a feeling of being moved, like kelp, like the currents move the kelp beds, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a fluidity to that movement that's very elegant and efficient. But aren't you less, less in, in a young spiritual journey here, you're seeking out teachers, right? And eventually the teachers are... It's here, right? And so it, it gives you a much more sense of peace. And you, teachers are still teachers, and, and people that transmit beautiful wisdom, energy. But that's the same energy is in you. Absolutely, the same same love that Rumi had in his heart is in our hearts that's also. Right. Yes. So it, it it 
frees us up from a kind of exterior seeking after wisdom, although wisdom is everywhere, but it also brings back home responsibility. That's right. That ultimate responsibility. I mean, here it is. You've been there. So. Well, I think authentic awakening brings forth more love for all beings. Yeah. That's just the effect that it produces. And including and so yourself that, and your ego structure. Absolutely, yeah. for all beings, including ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And of course, so that go. naturally lends us to actions that are loving and noble and serve and help and heal, because what else is there to do, really? You know, mm-hmm. that is actually satisfying, is mm-hmm. then to share that goodness in some way that supports other people in this world. And we might not be able to do big things, but we can all move our precious life force towards actions that are noble and healing and helpful in some small way. Beautiful, beautiful. We're probably coming towards the end of our time, Catherine. Is there anything you or us? Yeah, Doug, I'd I'd, I'd like you to weigh in. Such a beautiful transmission. I, I was just sitting here taking in everything, and the three of you carried the dialogue so beautifully as I just heard what you were saying and thought about allowing all this into my life and practice and and just showing up and allowing instead of feeling like I need to become some perfected image of something and one thing that really sticks out to me that I carry with me from that is the idea and the importance of learning to trust those impulses and those nudges when they arrive and, and to see them through a different allowing lens through the lens of grace and the safety, the love that it brings forward. Mm-hmm. And you likewise for me the words that came up from the third Zen patriarch, one of those exquisitely pithy transfer transmissions that has come down to us over the centuries. The way is one with the trusting mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, that yeah. And that's one of the things you've been sharing with us. Uh, There's been so much in this dialogue. It has been what we hoped would happen here, that is an exploration into depth of of some of the deepest possibilities of who we are and how how we can recognize that. And your emphasis on the way of grace, as you title your book, is very beautiful for particularly for me, who's been such a doer and striver, and uh, I know I'm not alone, so your emphasis on grace and your transmission of that, I think is just a beautiful gift to us all. And so on behalf of us and behalf of everyone who's listening and, and all the lives you've touched, you've touched so many people. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joy. Thank you, both. Yeah. Thank you. Good luck with this whole project and may it really catch fire in the best possible way and bring immense benefit to many people. Thank you. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.